All right, we're in week number two of a series that my team started last week. I wasn't here, but they kicked off a series that we're entitling Close to Him Equals Close to Them. So if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go back to our app or go back to our website, and you can watch the message from last week. I actually had three different speakers, so you can pick you know, either one of them or watch all three of them. But we had a message that they ministered last week to get this started, and the real spiritual truth that we're unpacking all throughout this month in this series is this. The health of our vertical relationship with God is reflected in our horizontal relationships with people. Let me say that again. The health of our vertical relationship with God is reflected in our horizontal relationships with people. If I can say it another way, I'd say it this way. If you want to know how tight I really am with God, look and see how well I get along with other people. Because I can say all I want to say, man, I can sing the best of songs, I can lift my hands, I can be real demonstrative in worship, I can quote a whole lot of scriptures, I can tell you, you know, why, you know, this certain prophet said that, and I can connect all the dots in the Bible, but if I'm a little demon on wheels, and every time you look around, I'm in a fight with somebody, and and nobody can ever stand me, and and I, I can never apologize, I can never fix relationships, I can never grow relationships, I can tell you whatever I want to tell you, if I can't get along with people at all, it is because I'm not really getting along with God at all. Because the health of my vertical relationship is reflected in how my horizontal relationships with people pan out. 1 John 1, 7 says it this way. It says, but if we are living in the light. Everybody say living in the light. Come on, say it like you mean it. Say living in the light. If we're living in the light like God is in the light, then we have fellowship. Everybody say fellowship. We have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The Bible says that if we are actually living in the light like God is in the light. In other words, if I'm pulled up close to him, If the light of his countenance is the light of his ways, if the light of his love is really shining down in my heart, then it's going to cause me to have fellowship one with another with other people. Now, when we think of the word fellowship, we're not talking about just getting together to watch a Super Bowl or just getting together to go bowling. Fellowship means more than just being in the same room, having a festive time. The word fellowship comes from a Greek word, koinonia, spelled K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A, koinonia. It means fellowship. It means association, it means community, it means communion, and it means joint participation. If we have, if we're walking in the light, living in the light, then we're going to have fellowship with other people. We're going to have koinonia. We're going to have fellowship, association, community, communion, or joint participation. This word koinonia, it literally refers to a partnership in which we share, (coughs) excuse me, in the hardships as well as the victories. In other words, when I have true connection with God and his light is shining in my heart, I'm going to be in meaningful relationships with other people where there is a shared benefit. Somebody say shared benefit. In other words, I'm not just taking advantage of you. You're not just taking advantage of me. But we are both blessed to be connected to each other. We share in the hardships, but we also share in the victories together. See, real fellowship with God inevitably is going to affect the way we function in our relationships with each other. There is no way I'm going to have a solid relationship with God and it not have an impact on the relationships I have with other people. I'd say it this way. It is impossible. Everybody shout impossible. impossible. No, say it like you mean it. Say impossible. impossible. It is impossible to live in the light with God and our relationships remain unchanged. 
Can I just say it this way? If you're still hanging with the same people the same way you were before you got saved, there's something wrong. Because when I, when I come to the light, when I open up my heart and embrace the, 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 the light of God's word, his light starts to shine in me. He transforms me on the inside. It doesn't make me better than anybody else. It definitely doesn't make me push myself away from other people like I'm, I'm more holy than they are. But if, if I'm dwelling in the light with God, it's going to either do one or two things. It's going to pull me closer to people who are also walking in and pursuing the light. Or it's going to make me realize that there's some folks that have no desire to walk toward the light. And even though I love them with all of my heart, it's going to be hard for me to be as close to them as I used to be in the past. You ought to shout amen like you actually believe that. So, so, so the closer I get to God, it's going to pull me closer to some people. But at the same point, it's going to probably also end up causing me to have some distance with some other people. Not because I'm judging them, not because I'm looking down on them. Sometimes it's because the fact that I've actually made a decision to live my life for God is going to leave some of them feeling uncomfortable. Not because I'm judging them, but simply because I've made a commitment that I'm going all the way with God. You know, there's some people that are okay with you coming to church as long as you don't get serious. And, and they're the very same ones that will talk about you because you go to church, you still do all the same stuff you used to do. But they like that version of you better because that version of you doesn't put any level of pressure on them to see the darkness hiding in their own heart. I'm preaching better than you saying amen. And what we have to do is come to the place where I'm not going to acquiesce and become the version of me that makes you feel comfortable. I'm going to go all the way with God. I'm not going to be extreme to the place to where I'm leaving other people feeling judged because I'm saying stuff about their life. But I'm going so far with God that I don't want to have to look back and still recognize the person I used to be. Amen? 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 says, But if we say we love God and we don't love each other, then we are liars. We cannot see God. So how in the world can we love God if we don't love the very people we can see? The commandment that God has given us is this, love God, but also do what? Come on, love God, but also do what? I can't hear you. Love God, but also do what? Love God and also love each other. Today I want to, there's something over there, something in the microwave or something over there? (laughs) There's something over there, they'll figure it out. Today I want to spend some time talking about this topic in week number two, loving leaders. Loving leaders. You say, well, when you say loving leaders, what are you talking about, Pastor? Are you talking about leaders who are loving? Are you talking about us making sure we love on our leaders? And the answer is yes, I'm talking about both of those. Loving leaders. Listen to this. I wrote this out just to kind of give us a a, a basis for what we're talking about. We are living in a time where there is a huge leadership void. We could almost say that many segments of our society are leaderless today all the way up the chain to the most powerful office in the world, the office of U.S. president. Recent polls have shown that our country is not excited about either of the two likely candidates for president in this year's election. What does that say to us in the most powerful country in the world? We have a leadership void. One reason is because in our current cancel culture, so many people at the front of the line are afraid to lead out of a fear that their decisions won't agree with the masses. The sad part about that is that the nature of true leadership means oftentimes making decisions that benefit the masses even when the masses don't agree. Henry Ford, the, 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 the founder of the, the Ford automobile, who's, uh, who's credited with inventing the automobile, 
Henry Ford once said this, if I had asked the people what they wanted, they would have asked for a faster horse. In other words, leaders must never be afraid to lead. The other challenge in this leadership void are people who are at the front of the line but don't genuinely care about the rest of the people in the line. Selfish leadership is really not leadership. It's usership. And we need to cultivate a breed of leaders who will lead from conviction and prayer and values and vision, but will also resist the temptation to take advantage of the trust that other people have placed in their care. Give me an amen, somebody. If I could sum it up, I'd just say it this way. The closer we get to God as leaders, the more our leadership should resemble his. If I'm a leader and I say I'm close to God, then my leadership should resemble his. Now, I recognize that many times we do things out of ignorance. I did a lot of things early on in my leadership out of ignorance. You just do what you've seen somebody else do or you do kind of what you think makes sense. But the more I pull up close to him, the more that we as leaders, because this is not just a, a message where I'm teaching you what a pastor should do. This applies to you and your role as a manager, your role as a supervisor, your, your role as a teacher in the classroom. Whatever role of leadership we find ourselves in, God has called us to be loving leaders, which means the closer I get to him, the more my leadership should resemble his leadership. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we call this the love chapter, and this really is a, a chapter that God used years ago to help me change my, my whole life. I had I'd been saved since I was 17 as a teenager, but how many of you can be saved and not living like it? Yeah. Yeah. It's about eight of them. <laughs> how many know you can be saved but not living like it? Yeah. How many know you can be saved and not living like it? Yeah. How many are saved but not living like it? Come on. <laughs> you can't raise your hand. One of those, you got to raise your hand too. <laughs> right? I was saved at 17, but I wasn't living like it. And, and it wasn't until I got to Word of Faith and I heard Bishop Keith Butler, who was Pastor Butler at the time, actually start to teach the Bible like I teach it to you. He wasn't yelling and screaming. He was going line upon line, verse upon verse, telling us what the Greek means, what the Hebrew means, and telling us how you apply that to your life. That's when my life started changing. And that's when I finally realized I had an anger problem. And I know it's amazing and wonderful I am today. It's hard for you to believe I used to have an anger problem. But I was an angry teenager, man. My mother and I were talking about this recently. I used to be fighting all the time and you know, anytime I felt disrespected, I felt a need to fight. And, and it was really because I, I was angry as a teenager because of some of the circumstances in my life, because of, of not having a dad there and, and then feeling like, you know, I'm a, I'm a star athlete in all these sports and my mom is always there, but why don't I have a dad there? And why is my mother having to struggle so much? And, and I have to not ask her for certain things. So I don't want her to feel bad because she can't get it. And all of that just built anger up on the inside of me. And so even when I became a young adult and I started being taught the Word of God, I still realized I had an anger problem. And I remember my pastor teaching a message, and he, he took us to 1 Corinthians 13, and he said, we call this the love chapter. And he said, the Bible says that God is love, so if we're made in God's image and after God's likeness, that means the, our real nature is we are love too. He says, so when you think about the Bible describing love, every time the Bible says this is what love is, you ought to put your name in there and say, well, this is who I am too. And for about a year and a half, almost two years, every day I would get up and confess these, these, these verses right here from the Amplified Bible, and I would plug my own name in everywhere that it said love. And it literally, over that course of time, started to transform my whole personality until I became as amazing as I am today. <laughs> well, let, let, let's read 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. But and it's, instead of putting love there, I'm going to put a godly leader in that spot. 
So 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says, love is patient and kind. But let's say it this way. A godly leader is patient and kind. A godly leader is not jealous. They don't sit around and brag and boast all the time. They're not proud, and a godly leader is not rude. Godly leaders don't demand their own way. They're not irritable. They don't keep a record of all the people that have done them wrong. Godly leaders don't rejoice about, and I add it, or participate in, injustice, but they rejoice whenever the truth wins out. Godly leaders never give up. I added this part right here, especially on people. They don't lose faith, and they're always hopeful, and they endure throughout every circumstance that shows up. Why? Love endures. Love is patient. And the same thing is true of those godly leaders who are operating in the character of God. What I'm really trying to say is this. Point number one, loving leaders know how to treat people the right way. Loving leaders, come on somebody, treat people the right way. Can I just say this? We have got to come to the place where we refuse to allow ourselves to be led by leaders who are not godly leaders. What I mean by that is that it's not okay to just, to just allow somebody to be your pastor and, and allow somebody to be your leader and, and, and they're just mean and, and honorary and, and, and prideful. And We've got to get to the place where we understand that it's okay to have an expectation that my leader will actually treat people the right way. In fact, can I say it this way? Being a boss does not give me the right to be a bully. In fact, say it out loud. Say, being a boss doesn't give me the right to be a bully. Tell the person next to you, say, hello, friend. Say, being a boss doesn't give me the right or you the right to be a bully. Right? Come on. Don't give me a right. Just, just because I'm the boss, because I'm the manager, because I'm the supervisor, because I'm the one with the title, doesn't give me a right to be a bully. And that's not only true in the workplace. Come on. Can I just say this? It's also true of us as parents. I didn't get very many amens on that one. You was tracking with me until I added a parent part in there, right? Being the parent doesn't give me the right to be a bully. It does give me a right to, be, to, to, to command and be obeyed. Come on, if I'm paying the bills, come on, somebody. If I'm the one caring for everything, I have an expectation. What I say to do is going to be done. But it doesn't give me the right to be a bully. That means even as a parent, we have to recognize sometimes I'm in charge, but I can still be wrong sometimes. And sometimes one of the things that, that causes frustration with our children is that they can see that a decision we've made is wrong. They know that we know the decision we made is wrong. But because we are the boss, we're the parent, we will never come back and do what we'd expect them to do, which is acknowledge that we were wrong, watch this, and even apologize. Some of you as parents think I'm cussing at you to even consider apologizing to our children. But our kids will actually have more respect for us when we hold ourselves accountable to the same things we ask them to be accountable to. My daughter Kerrigan, she's 22 now, will be 23 later this year. When she was uh, headed into middle school, I can't remember if she was in sixth grade or she might have even been in eighth grade. But when our kids were young, we had a rule in the house, which was uh, they, they could not use their electronics during the week. They could, Friday after school, they could pick up their electronics and use them throughout the weekend with some, some parameters until Sunday. Sunday evening, they had to check them back in and focus on school throughout the week. Well, that was their rule in elementary school. Well, when my daughter got to middle school, we, you know, she's the oldest child. How I many of the oldest child is really the guinea pig child? <laughs> Any other older kids in here like I am? We're the practice children, right? 
And by the time you get to the third one, you kind of perfect it. You're like, well, I don't care. Go ahead and do that. Yeah. Go ahead and use that chainsaw to cut down a tree. You're six years old. You're six years old. You're halfway grown. Go ahead and cut down that tree. <laughs> that third child, you go, go ahead. You're all right. But the first one, man, you, you're setting the rules and you, you're so nervous about, you know, getting it right. And, and so with her we, in elementary, that was the rule. She was the first one to hit middle school. And so one night I come into her room during the weekday and I can tell she's got her phone or iPad or something under the cover. She's communicating with one of her friends. I ask, what are you doing? And she tries to hide it and says she's not doing anything. And I take the phone and I say, babe, you know the rule. You're not supposed to be on your phone during the week. And so, I, but the thing is, watch this, as a parent, one of the things we have to learn how to do is don't let your emotion cause you to discipline out of emotion. In that moment, I was upset, frustrated that she disobeyed the rule, but I didn't t- snatch her out of the bed and, and start whooping her on the spot or give her two weeks of punishment right there. Went back downstairs, April and I talked about it, and we both agreed that, you know what, she was wrong for violating the rule. But watch this, we were wrong for not coming back to adjust the rule from elementary school to middle school. So I came back the next day and I told her, I said, sweetheart, first of all, let me apologize to you because you're now in middle school and we hadn't even considered the fact that we were holding you accountable to the exact same rules we had when you were in elementary school. And we should have made an adjustment and given you some slack when it comes to your electronics. I said, but the other side of it is, as long as we have a rule in place, we're expecting you to obey it. Watch this. There's a whole lot more respect that your kid has when you can acknowledge that what, what I was asking you to do wasn't fair. What you have a right to do, sweetheart, is, is come and challenge whether or not this is what the rules should still be. You don't have a right to decide to violate on your own. I'm preaching better than you're saying amen. I said I'm preaching better than you're saying amen. See, see uh, even though I'm the boss, I can't be a bully. That, that's true if I'm a school teacher. That's true. That's true if I'm a, a flight attendant. That's true if I'm a police officer. Whatever role I have in life, I can be the boss, but it doesn't give me a right to be a bully. Colossians 4.1 says it this way, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master who's in heaven. One of the greatest examples of all time in terms of how you are supposed to care for the people with you comes from Jesus, who is the most loving leader of all time. In John chapter 13, verse 13, he said, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. He says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet... In other words, what he's saying is, if I'm the boss and I'm serving you, then you ought also wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example. Everybody say example. Example. Everybody say example. Example. That you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you actually turn around and do these things. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying God has called us as leaders to model how others in our organizations should be treated. God has called us as leaders. If you want to teach your managers how to treat the people that are submitted to them, then they're going to treat them based on how you have related to them. It's my job in this organization to treat all of my ministers the right way so they know how to turn around and treat all of our dream team leaders the right way. So they know how to turn around and treat all the people who show up here to to church the right way. It's a cascade. And the way I treat them as a leader is setting the example of what it should be in our organization. 
Which is why it says, I can't expect to be mean to my people and then turn around and wonder why they're, they're being mean to other people. I remember one time years ago when we were still back over on Merrill Road, and there's probably only 200 of us at the time, and, and um, one of my ministers was, was over all the ushers, and our head usher back then was, was Angelo Craig. Y'all, y'all know big Angelo? Angelo's like six feet, 11 and a half. And he was our head usher, you know, back in the day. That's when Leslie was a, a hostess, and she's having a little blue jacket and a little gray skirt. And back then, we had, they had to wear little stockings. And, and so Angelo was over the, the male ushers. His, his twin sister, Angela, was over the, the female hostesses. And, and so, Angelo had did something, apparently, or didn't do something that one of my ministers expected him to do. And so they all had little mailboxes where when they got there for midweek service, they can go and check their box. And I just happened to be walking by and looked in this box, and I saw this note, and I grabbed it. Uh, for, it was written to Angelo, and I read it, and it was from one of my ministers to Angelo, and it was scathing. I mean, he, this, Angelo's a volunteer. <laughs> He's not a paid employee. And, and, and what my minister is saying to him, the way he's saying it, I'm, I'm appalled. Thankfully, I grabbed it before Angelo ever had a chance to see it, and I took it back to my office. And when that minister showed up, I called him in. I was like, hey, did you write this? Did you, were given, you intended for Angelo to get this and read it? And I, I, I asked him, and I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't go over the top with him. I just asked him, I said, have I ever talked to you like that? If I don't talk to you like that, what makes you think I expect for you to turn around and talk to my head usher like that? And it was a loving lesson that has helped him in his leadership now to turn around and love on the people that serve with him the right way. Can I get an amen, somebody? Can I be honest? It, it took me some time to learn that because I didn't know that when I first started ministry. That's why every leader should be growing. Every leader should be developed. Every year we should get better in our leadership. When I first started in ministry, I was a 26-year-old kid, man. You know, I, I'm a 26-year-old, but I got all these 40-something-year-olds and 50-year-olds and 70-year-olds coming to my church. And you know, I felt like I need to make sure they know I'm in charge. I weigh about 140 pounds. <laughs> and, 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 and true story, I, I thought I was mean when I first started as a pastor because I thought you're supposed to be mean. I thought, you, I mean, you're in charge. You got to make sure they know. So I'm mean. And my personality, naturally, I'm not even mean, naturally speaking, but I'm trying to be mean because that's what you're supposed to do as a leader. And I remember one day uh, when we first started, I didn't have a praise team and, and, and band members and all that. Our praise team was me. And Pastor Crawford, who's the pastor of our Miami church, and Diane Woods, the three of us were the praise team. Kenneth Reese was on the keyboard playing, Bo Harris played the bass, and Patrick Harmon was on the drums. That was in t- so every Sunday when we first started, I had to lead praise and worship. So I had to, I had to get, get prepared in the back for my message, and then we come out and we practice the songs that we we're going to sing for the day. Then we come out and sing them, and then I'd get ready to preach the message after that. So one Sunday we come to, to practice the song. And for whatever reason, you know, uh, the, my, my music pastor at the time, something wasn't right. Maybe I was just in a bad space. But when we started practicing the song, I stopped it. And the way I responded to him wasn't with the love of God. And I, and I watched what happened that day. His whole countenance fell. And we had to go out and do an 8 o'clock service and then I think an 11 o'clock service that day. And I never saw his smile come back the whole day. He played the song, but there was no joy in his voice. There, there was no joy on his face. And I said to myself, you just killed his spirit before it was time for you all to go out. And I corrected myself that day. And I said, I will never again, watch this, allow myself to be so undisciplined as a leader to where I allow emotion to cause me to correct something at a time. It doesn't need to be corrected. In a way, it doesn't need to be corrected because I actually for that day killed the spirit in this guy. 
And what God may have wanted to do through him, he probably wasn't fully even open to have God flow through him. I'm preaching better than you saying amen. I'm trying to tell you that leadership is a growing process. And one of the things we learn as a leader is how to respond to people the right way. Even when we bring correction as a leader, it should be done with respect and dignity and a, and a measure of care in mind. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 12 says, The Lord corrects everyone he loves just like a parent corrects a child that they dearly love. Now, I'll give you one caveat there because I am saying that we ought to correct the right way. I don't even believe in correcting people publicly unless if somebody chooses to act up publicly... I have this in my notes. I will match that energy. <laughs> hmm? I don't know if that's in the Bible or just in my heart. Come on. I don't know if that's in you know, the book of John or the book of third Sandra, <laughs> my mama. Because my mother was that way, man. My mother was not the kind of mama that, you know, you can go in the grocery store and you're going to fall out on the ground. I want a candy bar. She wasn't going to go, well, you wait till we get home, little George. No, you fall out in the grocery store, my mama diving headlong. In... <laughs> Anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> now, I didn't, I didn't, I'm not speaking that out of, out of personal experience because I didn't get many whoopings growing up. I didn't. A whooping for me lasts a long time. <laughs> I don't need you expending that kind of energy. You can play tennis or something else with all that. <laughs> Ping pong, you ain't got to be whooping me. So, I, I, true story, I can probably count on one hand the number of whoopings I had growing up. On one hand, but I had a brother named Deshaun. I can count on two hands the number of whoopings he had on Tuesdays. <laughs> now watch this. So, so we're talking about how leaders, how, how leaders have to treat people the right way. But let me flip that coin the other way. Because for every, every, every leadership principle, the other side of it is this. Loving leaders that are treating people the right way, watch this, need to be matched by loving followers who give them permission to lead. It's a relationship. Loving leaders who treat people the right way need to be matched by loving followers who give them permission to lead. Listen to this. You'll probably not hear this in many other settings you go into, but listen to this. In any God-fearing relationship, the follower is really the one who has the power. In any godly relationship, the follower is really the one who has the power. Why is that, Pastor? Because a loving leader will not force themselves into your space. If you put up a wall and say, I ain't, you don't need to tell me about that. I ain't asking you your, your, your opinion on that. A loving leader is not going to force their way and tell you what you got to do. A loving leader is going to say, if, it's, if it comes to your business, your personal life, if you want to do it the wrong way, they'll let you walk right off a cliff and do it. They'll try to stop you. They'll try to warn you. They'll try to give you all the reasons. But if you refuse to listen to a loving leader, they're not going to bogart their way into your life, which means this. You'll get a lot more out of the relationship with a loving leader if you legitimately have a heart. Watch this word. Watch this word to submit. You have a loving, godly leader, you're going to get a whole lot more from them. They're going to have more wisdom from God. They're going to have more direction to help, help you take the next steps if you have a heart that is willing to submit. Listen to this. How do, you, how do I know what I'm submitting? Submission only happens when there's a conflict in direction. Can I tell you that? I, I don't know how submitted somebody is to me until I ask you to do something that you don't really want to do. If everything I ask you to do, that's what you would have done anyway. That's not submission. That's cooperation. 
If I say, this is the way we ought to go, and you're like, that's exactly what I was thinking. Well, you walk with me. That's not submission. That's cooperation. Submission is not even this. Watch this. When you're, you're, you're sitting, you're, you're standing up on the outside. Everybody, it looks like you're joining on the outside, but on the inside, you're sitting down. That's not submission. That's called compliance. It means I'll do it. I'm walking this way, but my heart is going that way. The word submission, this, this will help you out. The word submission, if you break it down, submission. Submission means to take your mission the way you would have done it and put it up under another mission. Because I respect the chain of authority and leadership. And even if in my heart I have another way I would have done it, I'm going to put all my heart and effort and energy into supporting the way my leader has said to do it. Because I believe in the chain of authority and command. And I believe God will bless it because I've got my heart right to do it the way my leader asked me to do it. That's good preaching whether you say amen or not. That's good. I said that's good. See, submission, the only way we can get to a place of really living a life of submission, listen, listen to me, we can only get to that place when we are healed enough to value the beauty of godly leadership. See, that's why I've got to pull close to God even to be able to submit. The closer I get to God, I'm able to submit in loving leadership relationships. Because otherwise, I, every time you tell me to do something, it's going to trigger in my heart something that somebody did with me when I was a kid. And now I'm resisting you, but I'm not really resisting you. I'm resisting my third grade teacher. I'm not really resisting you. I'm resisting the, 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 the man down the street who, who touched me the wrong way. I'm not really resisting you. I'm resisting all the other authority before you that didn't handle me properly. And now I'm simply taking it out on you. So I cannot go along with what you're asking me to do because I haven't gotten close enough to God for him to heal that spot in my heart. See, in my, in my marriage relationship, I tell these people all the time, April is the one that has the power in our marriage. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the leader. God put me at the, at the head as the leader, but she's the one who's got the power because I cannot get anything done with her if she won't allow me to lead her. I'm never going to put my hands on her, ever. See, if, she, if she frustrates me, I'm not going to grab her and try to shake her to, to, to do it. I'm not going to be cussing her out at home. I'm not going to take resources and manipulate and say, well, if you don't do this, then I'm not going to do this for you. So I can do nothing in my marriage if she won't give me permission to lead her. The beauty of a marriage is that she's willing to let me lead. And I'm willing to lead not from a position of dominance, but from a position of love, which means I never come home and announce to her what we're doing. I may come home and share with her what I sense God is saying, but if God is saying it to me, we serve the same God. We have the same Holy Spirit. If he says it to me, he knows how to say it to her. And if we don't both get it, then we need to stand still until we have both heard what God is saying. I'm preaching better than you saying amen, man. This is the problem in so many marriages right here. We need more men to stand up and lead your home, man. Stand up, go to God and get a vision. Some of you have an amazing wife, and she's frustrated because she's doing all the stuff the man should be doing. She's making the decisions. She's leading. She's the one coming to prayer on Saturday mornings to hear what God has to say. We're not asking you to be a prophet. We're just asking you to stand up and lead, man. You don't have to be as eloquent as she is in prayer. You don't have to be emotional like she is in prayer. But if you just try to get along with God, God will meet you where you are, brother. He'll talk to you right where you are, man. He'll give you direction. And you may not come back and say, thus saith the Lord. You may just come back and say, you know, but you know, sweetheart, I'm sensing we ought to do that this way. And what most women are starving for is a man that will just step up and lead them. 
the way they deserve to be led. I'm preaching good, man. I'm preaching good. Let me give you the other side of it, though. The other side of it, when that man steps up and he's ready to try to lead, sweetheart, you got to give him space to lead. I can't get no claps from you now. Give me some more claps. Don't stop clapping now. Hmm? Some of you have some men who are trying to lead, but he can only lead you as far as you wouldn't let him lead. When, when we talk about, I remember growing up, they would talk about women who they call her, call her Jezebels. And growing up in church, they call a woman Jezebel if she had on too much makeup or if her skirt was too short. No, no, if you go back and read the story of Jezebel, what made Jezebel what we now call a Jezebel wasn't her makeup. What made her Jezebel is that if you study her name, the name Jezebel means the unhusbanded one, the one without a husband. And what's so ironic about that is that she actually had a husband. His name was Ahab. But when you see decisions being made, you see Jezebel making them all. And you see Ahab basically running behind her. So really, the spirit of Jezebel is not makeup and a short skirt. It's a woman who will not allow her godly man to hear from God and give us a vision. The man can do nothing if you don't give him space to actually lead you. Mm. Here it is, right? It says, when leaders and followers both pull close to God, the light of God's way will drive out the darkness of our own selfish way. Second point I want you to get is this. Loving leaders do not demand their own way. When we're loving leaders, we do not demand our own way. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of other people. See, the natural trajectory of leadership is towards self. If you're the leader, when you come into a meeting, man, you're usually the first one to speak. You open up the meeting. You're usually the last one to wrap it up. Leaders are usually the one that they get all the credit when things go well. They get the blame when it goes poorly, which means things tend to, 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 to trend toward the leader. And if we don't watch it, we can take a selfish posture because so many eyes point toward us as a leader. Loving leaders, on the other hand, resist the natural trajectory of self-focused leadership and they do it with something that Craig Groeschel calls the habit of you first leadership. Which means I train myself to think about other people. I train myself to think about how does it affect my employees. I'm constantly trying to figure out this decision we're getting ready to make, how does that affect our, our team members? If they got kids, small kids at home, how is it affecting them? If we decide to close the office one day, how, how does that affect them? It's a you first leadership style. Some leaders try to make you think they are important. The best leaders, however, help you to see why you are important. I love this passage in Genesis 13. It says, so Abram left Egypt and he went back to the Negev, he and his wife and everything he owned. And Lot was still with him. By now, Abram was very rich. He was loaded with cattle and silver and gold. Skip down to verse 5. Lot, his nephew, who was traveling with him, was also rich in sheep and cattle and tents. But the land could not support both of them. They had too many possessions. They couldn't both live there. So quarrels broke out between Abram's shepherds and between Lot's shepherds. Skip to verse 8. Abram said to Lot, let's not have fighting between us, between your shepherds and my shepherds. After all, we're family. He said, look around. Isn't there plenty of land out there? Let's separate. If you go left, then I'll go right. If you go right, then that's fine. I'll go left. What does Abraham demonstrate right here? He, he demonstrated two things. Number one, he demonstrated loyalty and concern for his employees. 
He realized that their quality of life was being affected because every day they come to work, they're about to get into a fight because he's got so much possessions and his nephew's got so many possessions that they're having a hard time staying as close as they were. So he's willing to separate and, and go away from his nephew because he wants to make sure his, his, his herdsmen, his employees, that their quality of life is not adversely affected. Second thing he demonstrates is what we talked about is you first leadership. By allowing Lot to choose the land that he wanted first, and Abraham turned around and took the rest. He could have said, I'm, I'm the uncle. I'm the one that brought you out here. So let me decide what land I want, then you take whatever I decide not to have. But a you first kind of leader says, all right, you, you, let me make sure you're taken care of. He allowed his nephew Lot to choose first. Now, you would have expected his nephew to say, no, well, no, unk, come on, unk. Well, you've been taking care of me, unk. I wouldn't even have all this if it wasn't for you, unk. No, no, Lot did what family tends to do. <laughs> Use up everything you got (laughs) and then look out for themselves. He looked out for himself. He thought about himself. He took the best land. But watch this. God still blessed Abram in return because his heart was right. So when you're a leader and you care for your people, don't ever feel like they're going to hurt you. Don't ever feel like they're going to take too much from you. Anytime anybody has left us, whether we had to release them or whether they walked away, I try, April tell you, I try to make sure that if anybody says anything, they say they gave us more than they owed us. Why? Because when you're a you-first leader, you're not trying to use people for what you can get. You're trying, to, you're trying to take people and invest into them to make their life better when they walk away from you. Amen. 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 Simon Sinek gave us this quote, the leaders who get the most out of their people are the ones who care the most about their people. I learned this concept not in Bible school, but in in business school, to treat people like assets, not liabilities. It means the people around you are a liability. You try to minimize liability. You try to keep it from growing. But an asset, you try to pour so much into that asset so it's more valuable later on. Treat people like assets, not liabilities. Let's flip the coin. Loving leaders who demand, who, who who don't demand their own way, They need to be matched by loving followers, listen to this, who understand the heavy burden of leadership. Can I just say there's a heavy burden of leadership? It really is. That means pray for your leaders. That means speak well of your leaders. That means don't just jump on and and believe every rumor or lie that somebody brings you about your leaders. Give your leaders space to be human and to not have to be perfect all the time. Support your leaders, watch this, in every godly endeavor that they bring. If they bring something, they're not asking you to violate the word of God or violate the law. Be willing to support your leaders because it's not easy standing in the place of authority. And and have you learned this? It's easy to quarterback when you're at home on the couch. When you don't have 300-pound linemen trying to take your head off, it's easy to say, I would have threw that pass, but he was wide open. He's wide open on the couch. It's easy to know what decision you would have made when you're not the one sitting there who have to make it. I found this graphic on social media pertaining to pastors, and I haven't vetted this, so I can't say for certain, but in my, anecdotally, I know this is probably true because I counsel so many pastors. 97% of pastors have been betrayed, falsely accused, or hurt by people they consider to be trusted friends. 70% of pastors routinely battle depression. 7,000 churches every year close up. 1,500 pastors walk away each month. Only 10% of the people that are currently pastors will actually retire as a pastor. 80% of pastors feel discouraged. 
94% of pastors' families are, are buckling under the pressure that comes along with ministry. 78% of pastors have no close friends. And then 90% of pastors report working 55 to 75 hours per week, sometimes without an applause ever showing up for them. I'm not saying that for you to feel sorry for pastors. It is a blessing. It is an honor to serve in this space. I am saying it to recognize it's easy to have an opinion when you're sitting in the seat. Instead of talking about your leaders, let's get better at praying for our leaders. In Genesis chapter 14, I told you how Abram's, he looked out for his employees. He made sure that they didn't have to have that poor quality of life. And they turned around and they repaid him. Because when his nephew, Lot, got captured, it was the same herdsman, his, 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 his servants in his house, that came and put their lives on the line to go and rescue his nephew, Lot. That's the beauty of relationship, man. The leader and the followers working together. I got your best interest. You got my best interest, and together let's go do something great. Make this confession with me. Say, as a loving leader, I am patient, kind, humble, polite, selfless, approachable, and forgiving. Say, as a loving leader, I have a reputation of loyalty, honesty, integrity, and treating people right. I'm not rude irritable, jealous, or territorial. As a loving leader, I put others first. I build people up. I bring out the best in others, and I lead by example. My heart is full of the love of God. That love never fails, so I never fail. Even Everything under my leadership prospers. My household prospers. My relationships prosper. My ministry prospers. My business prospers. I'm a loving leader, and I win. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on and shout like you believe that, man. Come on and shout like you believe that. Come on and shout like you believe that. Come on, God is improving my leadership. Come on, God is stretching me at home. Come on, and at work, and in my relationships. God is teaching me his heart, his character. And the closer I get to him, the closer I can get to them. Every head bowed, every eye closed in prayer. No one's moving or leaving out, please. I'm going to ask you to stay all the way to the very end, if you will. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to pray for you. I didn't say you are a bad person. You could really be one of the nicest people in the room and still not be saved. That's because salvation is not something we earn from God by just being good. Salvation is a free gift. God offers it to mankind. But like any gift, one person can offer it. The other person got to receive it. So God is standing here today knocking on the door of your heart, asking, will you let him in? Will you let Jesus be the Lord of your life? Will you allow his blood to pay the price for your sin and give him permission to lead your life for the rest of your days? So if you're in the room or if you're online, I want to ask you, ma'am or sir, teenager, will you let me pray for you today? I'm not going to embarrass you. It's not a church where we ask you to come up here to the front and have everybody look at you right there at your seat where you are. If you're ready to give your life to Jesus Christ, you're ready to surrender to him. That's all he asks. I want to lead you in a really simple prayer. This is, this is my, the most important time in the entire service right here. I want to lead you in a prayer that will change your life forever. So in just a moment, I'm going to count to three. When I get to three, if you are that person that is ready to say yes to Jesus Christ, I'm going to ask you, would you just slip your hand up when I get to three? 
I'm going to ask you to do it right away because the devil's going to try to talk you out of it. Everybody has their head bowed, eyes are closed, so nobody's looking around. This is between you and God right here. And when I get to three, if you're ready to stop running from God and stop having to handle everything on your own, I want to ask you to be bold and courageous and just lift up your hand. Here we go. One, two, three. Thank you. I see those hands already going up. Beautiful, beautiful. All over the room. Hands are up. You're not by yourself. I see that hand. Another hand there. Thank you. Another hand there. Beautiful hands there. Hands there. Another hand there. Thank you. Thank you. All these hands in my left. I love it. I love it. I love it. Anybody else? Thank you right there by the sound booth. Another hand there. Anybody else? By raising your hand, you're simply saying, yes, I'm ready to surrender to Jesus. Yes, I'm tired of running from God. Yes, I'm ready to surrender my life to him. That's all he asks for. Surrender your life. You don't have to promise all the stuff you'll stop doing. Just surrender to him right now. Let him take you by the hand and change you on the inside. And then help you get better on the outside. Anybody else online, raise your hand right there at home. All right, every one of you that raised your hand for prayer, I want you to whisper this prayer right there at your seat. Say, dear God in heaven, thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in my place. He paid the price for my sin but you raised him from the dead. I know he's alive right now. So Jesus, come into my heart now. Save me. Forgive me. Make me brand new. I surrender my life to you for the rest of my days. And according to the Bible, I am born again. Amen. Come on, Impact Church. Put your hands together.